Hello everyone, welcome back to Real Talk. I'm KC, and today we're doing a deep dive into the Undoing Racism workshop. And I've got three students with me who recently experienced their training. We're gonna talk about its impact, what they've learned, what they now see differently, their thoughts after this immersive and collective learning experience. So before I introduce them, let me say a little bit about the workshop, which I've not had the privilege of attending. So I'm here to learn along with listeners who haven't done the workshop and also those who have. So since 1980, the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond has trained over 2 million people, 2 million people through its two and a half day workshop all over the United States and in other parts of the world. That's 40 years of training, educating and building power. So they described their movement as a leaderful one, but one of their key figures was Ron Chisholm, who came from the neighborhoods of New Orleans, and he modeled the principle that change comes from oppressed peoples organized with the sense of their own power, not through service delivery systems, not through program-based initiatives that treat communities from a deficit model, uh, rather than the primary agents of social change. So the workshop, is based on the idea that racism is the single most critical barrier to building effective coalitions to social change. Racism has been consciously and systematically erected. It's been done and it can be undone only if people understand what it is, where it comes from, how it functions, and why it perpetuates. So they say, as anti-racist community organizers, we understand that there's no one right way to undo racism. They believe in the power of the collective, if people are aligned with anti-racist organizing principles, then the possibilities for how people organize are limitless. So in the spirit of their core belief in intergenerational organizing and leaderful movements, I'm joined today by three SCSU Southern Connecticut State University students who recently experienced the Undoing Racism workshop themselves, here to share thoughts, reflections, ideas as we move towards a future that is just. So with me today, I have Tatiana Jackson, uh, Zoe Pringle, and Shoshana Mahone. Welcome to Real Talk, you three. Thank you for having us. Yes, and if you would, um, tell us a little bit about who you are. Why, why did you do that workshop? I mean, weekends are precious for college yeah. students. What had you sign up? Yeah. What do you study? Who are you? <laughs> My name is Tatiana Jackson. I am a junior here at Southern Connecticut University. I am majoring in sociology with a concentration of criminal justice and criminology. And I just added a minor. We have a new minor here at Southern, the racial intersectional justice studies. So I just added my minor in that. Um, I have a really good professor during this fall semester, Cassie. She is one of the best professors that made me want to get more involved, especially within the school, because our school represents social justice. She sent me the email about this race undoing racism workshop, and 
I work on the weekends oh. and I'm full time. So getting that email as much as I wanted to join, I was like, can I get the PTO though? <laughs> you know, like the request stays off. Sure. Um, I did surprisingly. And, um, I went, I was nervous going into this because I, as a commuter in a transfer, mm -hmm. as my first semester here. Oh, this is your first semester? Yeah. Oh, wow. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Wow. Um, I don't know anyone. Yeah. So coming into this, I was like, okay, I'm actually doing this because this is what I want to do. I'm mm -hmm. like, not everyone will do this on their free time. Um, the first night was great. I felt like we got to know people. It was full. And we kind of talked about how are we going to introduce the workshop. This workshop has been going on for a while here at Southern. And they wanted to know how did we want to go about it. Because kind of like a podcast, we lead the way. And mm. that's how it was during the workshop, too. Yeah, we had instructors, but we kind of led them which way we wanted to go. Well, that makes sense with how they talk about their leader philosophy. You know, they're not going to be top down and they're not going to explain to you this is the one right way to undo racism. It has to be a collective effort. So that's cool that the actual way that they do the workshop models that. Yeah, definitely. That but Okay, I'm impressed that um, that you are, first of all, on our podcast at a two and a half day immersive workshop which is, I'm sure a lot of people were nervous about that. I don't care about the topic, let alone people get nervous about racism yes. and immersive learning experiences with other people. Um, and you're new. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So anyway, thank you for doing that. Very excited to hear more um, from you. And thank you for your... Of course. Just grateful to have you here as a student. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you, Tatiana. Thank you, Casey. Um, my name is Zoe Pringle. I am a psychology major here at Southern with a concentration in mental health and a studio art minor. Mm. I'm a resident advisor here. Mm. I've had numerous jobs, um, peer mentor, SCOP peer coordinate, coordinator. Um, I'm a member of the Multicultural Center and I'm a very strong like advocate for social justice and I have been. Um, and so just working in the past as a peer mentor, I was placed in an SCOP cohort um, with the United, oh, United, the University Access Programs um, director Don Stanton, and she she was basically my staff member, my mentor for a semester, and I had worked with her um, in the spring and summer. So she actually invited me with a scholarship to. Um, be a part of the workshop and I'm forever grateful for her because she has changed my life in numerous ways mm -hmm. but um yeah that first day Friday um was very it caught me off guard because mm -hmm. when you think workshop you think you know it's going to be very structured and there's going to be like homework right. and like worksheets and stuff like that but like um, Tatiana said, they were really organic in their, mm. like, teaching slash mentoring, coaching nature. Um, we we made a covenant of sorts, which is somewhat of a list of expectations for the group. Mm. Um, and it was very open. 
and very inviting to the the number of people that were there that we were all very diverse so i really like that they started off the workshop that way mm. um it felt like it was going to be a good weekend mm. so both of you were invited by you know a professor a mentor um you've been here and you've been doing a lot of different work um and so, and I think yeah. Dawn Stanton is one of the folks who has consistently brought that workshop. Yes, she yes. is. To our campus. Mm-hmm. Yes. So both of you, personal invites. I'm just thinking about listeners at other universities. Um, and, you know, all of us, faculty, students, staff, we all have so much on our plates. You know, we're so busy. And there have been um, times when the last time this workshop was held, I was inviting students who I thought would be so great, but they had all of these other things going on. And couldn't make it work. So, in in for folks who are listening outside who want to hold really meaningful change making kind of events, um, it's just useful to hear what it is that has people bring themselves to that to that space. I agree. We actually had a high schooler join us, mm. and it was I felt like he was needed to be there, mm. a young voice that really needed to be there, and he was very active and. They also, I don't know if my other girls got the same email, but they also told us to invite family or friends or community members too Mm. before I started. So it was very nice. It was very walking in. I wanted to see diversity. Mm -hmm. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I felt like there was... So much diversity there we did have i felt like it was equal kind of like between whites and minorities in the group or was there more minorities eight okay eight white people and the remaining minorities but we just talked about earlier how we think more men especially white mm. men yeah. should have been there right. we had some and Ooh, i do want to i want to come back to that point I yes come back to that one point. is really important <laughs> <laughs> um and one of them a student mike sanger was supposed to be with us today um and couldn't be but he was one of the or maybe the white man yeah he was, was one there. of them yeah one of three one of three yeah um well let's welcome um shoshana mahone to the podcast too hello welcome tell us a little bit who who are you what brought you to the workshop Hi, my name is Shoshana. Um, I'm a junior in the social work program. I minor in creative writing. I'm also a resident advisor. Um, I am a diversity peer educator for the Multicultural Center. And um, yeah, I just do a lot on campus. Um, um, I'm actually part of a social work project um, called Sean. Which is which stands for um, Stop HIV AIDS Women's Network. Mm. Um, so within that project, we look into like helping, like into figuring out like why the levels of women who are incarcerated changed drastically during COVID, and how that community was impacted um, by or affected by HIV and AIDS. Um, and just looking into the issues within like the prison system, like food injustice and like sleep nutrition and things like that. Um, my social work advisor, who's also like the advisor for the project, she was like, guys, um, please go to this workshop. Your office hours are canceled. (laughs) Like 
you guys need to go to this workshop. It's highly recommended. And I was like, okay, well, <laughs> I'll go. Um, and I was also recommended like in spring by um, the director of the multicultural um, center um, to go, but it was in spring and like, I had a lot going on and like, um, I, I don't think I was really like mentally ready or prepared to have that conversation. And I didn't know what I, I wanted to really get out of it. <clears throat> um, I knew I was going to get a lot out of it, but I was like, I don't really know what I was going to do with that information yet. Mm -hmm. So I was like, now, like, okay, like this idea is introduced to me once again. Like I know what I want out of it. And, um, so I went to the workshop and yeah, I mean, I went into it with like a mindset of like, I'm going to use this. I'm going to take what I got and use it into how I can make a change and within my own community. Like that's kind of like the goal I wanted that I went into the workshop with. And um, fortunately, like, I have a pretty good idea of how I want to make change. So, like, mm. I guess it was achieved. Um, and I it gave me, like, a lot more clarity on why I wanted to organize mm. and why I organized um, in the past. Interesting. So, yeah, you make a few good points there. One is that there are times in a person's life when you are not legitimately just not in the space to do this kind of a workshop. For sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And then, but to hear that when you're doing it, when you're ready, that it actually helps you reflect back on things you've done in the past and sort of connect some dots maybe that you didn't see before. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. So, okay. Now for, so some listeners I'm sure have done this workshop. Most probably haven't. So um, can you give us a, like paint a picture? How many people are there? Um, what does the room feel like? The space? Is it um, warm, inviting? You've said organic, but you know, like paint us a picture like we're watching a movie of this workshop. What are we seeing? Well, when I first went the first night, we were in a bigger room. Mm -hmm. Sorry, let me rephrase that. The first night we were in the seminar lounge and we... So comfortable seating? Yeah, it was yeah. Com the first night. Comfortable? I feel like it was... It, well... It was in a classroom setting, so I wouldn't say the seats were comfortable, but I would say, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I would say since we were like all in a circle, we were able okay. to see each other and it was a very like, because it was only like what, 20 of us, I believe. Mm -hmm. The first it was day, like, yeah. Yeah, it was like a very like, we. it was a very intimate like setting. Like we didn't feel like it was too many people or too many voices like overpowering one, overpowering one another. And it was easy to have like conversations fluidly and easy to like, I felt like it was more effective that way, having it be like a small circle of us, just like open-minded and willing to learn. Was it mostly yes. students? It was, no, actually. It, was, it wasn't really a lot of students there. Um, when I went the first night, it was very comforting. We actually had like variety of different pizzas and we were all talking and we were all eager because the instructors were there and we were like painting actually writing on a big post-it saying like we're gonna talk about this we're gonna do this but let's talk about boundaries too mm -hmm. because talking about race and racism in general is so like such a Right. You either have like a lot of conflict or you have people shut down yes. and they don't want to engage. That conversation yeah. could go many different That's ways. Right. And we made sure that we were going to stick to this type of conversation mm -hmm. and we're not going to go outside of that box. Uh -huh. um, very comforting. I will say the 
last two days, we were in a different room, which was way bigger and more rounded so we can all see each other. Mm-hmm. And the lights were dimmed and it felt good. I brought my blanket with me. They were mm. like, bring, wear something comfortable. We were all so comfortable and we were all looking at each other. Like no one was not an outsider and it was just powerful. Like when we were talking, when we got in small groups, they were all like so inviting. And I love that. I think, you know, I don't know if everyone thinks about this, how things like food and lighting and seating and do you feel comfortable in the clothes that you're wearing? Do you feel like you could bring a blanket or have whatever it is, whatever you might need um, to feel comfortable in a space, like how important that is for organizing? Like if you have a bunch of people who are hungry or uncomfortable, like you're not going to, I mean, and we can think about that as teachers also of anything. It's like if our students are hungry, uncomfortable, tired, have physical needs, are mentally elsewhere, mm-hmm. we're not going to do as much mm-hmm. as if everyone is really fully present. Right. So, okay, I like the dim lights. Yes, it was <laughs> a vibe. No fluorescence. Yeah. <laughs> no interrogation rooms. Not quite, no. I, I agree with Tatiana. The first day, it was very inviting. I remember we walked in, the chairs were already arranged in a circle, and we had, um, what was it, name tags? Mm-hmm. So that everybody felt comfortable. They're dorky, but, you know, it's important. <laughs> Loved yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, some people wrote, you know, a nickname. Some people wrote their, um, what what becomes before their name, like doctor or whatever. Some people wrote their pronouns, right? Mm-hmm. So that was, there was no instructions on that. That was very inviting. They had explained that um, before we got into it that we were going to eat dinner, right? So you were saying that food was really important. They said, we don't want you guys to to go into this on an empty stomach, which was really nice. Can't talk about racism on an empty stomach. <laughs> mm-hmm. Not at all. Okay. No, yeah. And the second day in that second room on a different in a different part of campus, um, what I really enjoyed was that it was a glass room. So mm. we could see um, behind everyone outside. Yeah. And it was a beautiful fall um, weekend. It felt like we weren't trapped and like we could... There was access to outside so that if we needed to right. have a break um, with these like really difficult conversations, we could do that. And it was the same way for the third day as well. Mm. And did you, you know, one thing I think about a lot, especially in the era of COVID, uh, I think about it as a teacher, about how important in-person experiential learning is. I mean, can you imagine this workshop online? I mean, not to say, I know that good trainings and good good teaching and good learning can happen online, no question. But I also wonder, how do you think it might have been different if it were online versus in a physical space together? I think that everyone would be engaged in the conversation. You can't have your camera off in person. Yeah, you can't. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like not everyone would want to do it if it was online. And the thought of undoing racism itself, we were talking about how others might see it. Like, what do you mean? We're going to undo racism in three days? Right. Like, there's many different opinions coming into this that faculty, staff, students, and instructors knew about. And we were like, this is going to be our world for these three days, small world, and we're going to talk about it. And it was nice. So I, I've, I have not done this workshop, but I have done like long, intensive um, 
experiential, transformative kind of learning um, experiences where you really do bond with the people that you spend that time with. Um, and I wonder, and so one thing is like, also it's organic, like the way that this workshop looks on our campus is going to look different than how they run it in LA or how they run it um, all in different parts of the country, different parts of the world, depending on the community um, and what the community needs. So I also know that like some of that learning, it's just like it happens to you and you can't exactly explain why or how, you know, you can't, um, somebody couldn't read a text and have the experience that you had. Um, it really is something that, that one needs to experience. So you should host a undoing racism workshop in your space. But yes, please. <laughs> I do. I want to hear about it's like, what were some of the most powerful moments for each of you? Yeah, definitely. Casey. Um, I remember they made it very clear on the first day that it was going to be based off of the group's needs and what we felt like we needed the most work on. Um, one of the most powerful moments for me was when they asked us, um, the group was pretty diverse. We had black people and they asked us, we self-proclaimed our identities. So they mm. had black people, white people, and um, Latino people. We didn't have any Native American people or um, Asian people in the group, but okay. they did ask us and they asked us, what do you like about blank? What do you like about being blank? Whatever identity you were. Interesting. And so what do you like about being white? What do you like about being black? What do you like about being Latino? Most of us in that room all agreed that we had never been asked that before. Mm. We're always asked, what do you not like? Right. Or what's wrong what's hard. with? Yeah, what's exactly. Wrong. And so what we learned, they love lists at the yeah. People's Institute. And yeah. I, I'm a list person. I love lists. Yeah, yeah. You have so one in front of you right now. I do. <laughs> <laughs> I usually do. Yeah. And so we had a bunch of lists, a bunch of papers all up around the room of lists that we had already made. This was just another one that they were going to make. They wrote the questions, white people, black people, Latino people. And we just went around in a circle. Everyone had their fair chance. What we noticed about the lists were that on the list of what white people like about being white, it had a lot to do with privilege. Mm -hmm. None of it really centered on culture or pride. Mm -hmm. um, actually, like most of the white people in the room, we had to kind of wait a little bit for their answer because sure. they were trying to find something that didn't sound so, I mean, I don't want to say bland, but it was like some examples where I like that I don't have to get my receipt checked at the grocery store. I don't like that. I don't have to worry about my son driving late at night and a police officer pulling him over. I like that I don't have to be questioned about basically anything that I say. When we talk about what Latino and black people liked, it had everything to do with culture and yep. nothing to do with privilege. Right. Because we don't, we don't have that privilege. We talked about our hair. We talked about our food our style, our fashion, um, the intimate relationships that we can make with other people of color. And both sides, well, all groups, I would say, um, felt envious of the other group because... Right, right. Yeah, because we didn't have what the other group had. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with Zoe. 
It was interesting. Um, going into this workshop as a black and Puerto Rican female, I already knew a bunch of like white supremacy, white privilege. I knew all about it. Sure. But they gave us a really, really good explanation of the history. Mm. And I felt like it was very needed. I gained the knowledge of like knowing that sometimes history does repeat itself. And they, I don't know any of the dates. You could tell me what happened in 1863. I wouldn't remember. I'm not good at history. But just knowing like what happened. I'm going to talk about how they, what some of the lists we created there. We're trying to figure out why is race, why is racism still a thing? And it goes back to the history. And a lot of the history we talked about was like, why, how does education play on minorities, the immigration, how race holds power. And we also talked about a few things going into this. I didn't know what gate, gatekeeping was. I was like, okay, they're trying to basically keep something from someone. But I learned more when it comes into play with race, though, like gatekeeping something. And that's really... How did they talk about gatekeeping? So they were talking about how with capitalism mm. and you can be like in a HR building and someone that has all of the control, but won't, I guess, give it to them. And they hold that information in. And we also learned the big part. I feel like sometimes race and racism is combined, but it's two separate different things. Sure, sure. And I knew this before because I am taking race and racism class, but we learned that race is just a category and that's it. But racism is like a whole bunch of things that play into your, the color of your skin. And we learned to separate the two because it seems to be, it is both talked about combining, but we kind of separated the two to understand who is racist? Why are they racist and how? Mm -hmm. And where does that come from too? I mean, the, someone described it to me once as like, when we're born, it's like we're arriving at a party and it's been going on for a while. People have been talking about all this stuff. And then here we arrive as a new person here and we're trying to figure out what's going on. Um, mm -hmm. But we're new, you know, like we, none of us like made this world that we're in. You know, like none of us invented racism. We've arrived in the world and we have to grapple with mm -hmm. these structures that do come from, have a legacy yeah. in all of our institutions. And I think it's so important to do that because especially where people, I think there's a problem when people stop with just the personal, you know, like their own experience or their own. And we're not looking at like, this isn't, this is something we all experience personally depending on our positionality, but it's way bigger than that. We're all just dealing with the same circumstances, but from different positions. Right. Just to go off the gatekeeping thing, yeah. we ta also talked about gatekeeping culture and how people of color t 
tend to gatekeep culture from white people because that's kind of like all we have. Um, mm. <laughs> and just to go off what Zoe was saying, when we made that list of like things that like different races liked with about their race, so right. the trend of like white people like it. it the things that they liked about themselves had to do with privilege mm-hmm. and that the things that us black people said, like it had to do with like, you know, being resilient, like the, the, the texture of our hair, like our culture, like our food, like, and it, it kind of aligned with some of what some um, Latino people were saying. And then we kind of like came to like the conclusion that like, well, these lists are very different. <laughs> For sure. And, we kind of came to the conclusion that like white people had, they still do. They had, they had culture back then. Like, but mm-hmm. they don't know, like today they don't know what it is. Right. So we were like, they, we said that they kind of traded in their culture. Privilege. To assimilate. Right. Mm-hmm. For, to have this right. privilege while black people, they kind of held it on, which is why today we kind of like get, you know, that's why, we have this like hatred because of this culture, but it's kind of interesting because this this kind of leads into why we have like cultural appropriation going on because mm. white people don't really right. know their culture. The vacuum, right? Mm. So they go into other cultures and kind of like, I guess you know, I people say culture vulture, but sure. <laughs> they kind of go into cultures kind of appropriated because they don't know their own. Mm-hmm. They kind of just to like fill in that space that they lost. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was kind of interesting because it kind of made me, it kind of opened my eyes and like, you know, I always like see like, you know, like white people like wearing braids or like trying like cook food that like they don't really know how to cook (laughs) on Twitter. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it makes sense to me now. It kind of makes, I kind of see in a different perspective because it's like, well, they're right. It's sad. It's, they're trying to find themselves, but it's, it's also hurting other people, Mm -hmm. but it's like where they don't know where to start, you know? And then I also said that um, white people and black people share this common thing where I'm personally I don't I, I'm, I don't really deal with this, but because I identify as a Jamaican, I know my parents they immigrate they um they're immigrants from Jamaica, um, but I know other people who are African American, but they don't really know specifically where they came from. Right. But white people also have that issue. That's true. But, That's true for me as a white person. Yeah. Yeah. But the difference is that white people, they have the privilege, but black people don't. Right. So the the struggle of not knowing where you come from, and then on top of that, the struggle of being discriminated and yes. like going through like the like generational trauma from like mm-hmm. slavery and like having ancestors that were just discriminated like not too long ago like 60 years ago mm-hmm. like these people are still living you know absolutely so it's it, it, it was kind of interesting looking at that in the perspective because like we have this they have this similarity but these two groups they get treated way differently mm-hmm. you know i was like yeah it's, it's kind of crazy thinking about that and it kind of goes into my other point about like the importance of history like yeah Personally, I don't like history. I hate mm. history. The last but why? But why? 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 <laughs> why? Because that my last history class was APUSH. It was APU United States History. Okay. Which? Okay. Go ahead. Yeah. And then I was like, this is literally this class is literally what I was taught every year 
like leading up to high school, which is why I didn't even bother taking a history class in college because I was like, this is going to be the same thing. I also didn't enjoy history ever. I yeah. was like English, creative writing. Yeah, because it was yeah. more creative. I got to got to think out of the box. But like, is it history or is it the way history is taught? I think it's mm-hmm. now it's the way history is taught. Absolutely. Because in this workshop, I realized, well, the importance of history is it's crazy it's crazy high yeah because it's it's why things are put in place Mm -hmm. it's things it's why things are the way they are and i think what i think the his the the most important part of history is is why like certain groups don't really know what where they came from and why the culture is lost and so thinking about that kind of opened my eyes like wow like this is like really important. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I I found the importance in learning my own history and why and who I what I identify as, like being a black person and learning more about my history instead of learning like learning about slavery and all like right. all the history classes I've taken. Like literally like all when it comes to like black people, it's a slavery, not the good and like mm-hmm. what they achieved or like 100%. not even like the civil rights movement when they like stood against like and fought right. for power right because they yeah. stop uh, i mean any history class that i ever took i feel like stopped at like world war one yeah they doesn't get close to the president and doesn't make the connection between the history and the present day i think because it's true. risky because if yeah. we all knew we might act yeah and but, but you don't know until you get to college often yeah coming if you want to yeah, coming out of college, it's like, why didn't I learn about these things sooner? Mm-hmm. And I feel like they should teach, like, what what they taught us in the workshop, they should bring these into schools. Mm-hmm. So that it gives them the opportunity, like high schoolers, it gives them the opportunity to want to organize and, right. and fight for what they believe in and fight for social justice and in their own communities. Mm-hmm. And I guess just just make them more feel like liberated yeah because yeah. the education system is very restricting there's a disconnect it's a yes. disconnect yeah. between like I, I i say humanity but i don't mm. know i feel like that's a stretch yeah. <laughs> but it it feels i feel like it's more liberating to just find out where you come from and mm. why and what the people who look like you did in the past and what they achieved Versus learning about one, you know, certain like race group and like learning about, about the same white presidents and right, 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 you know, yeah. Going off of what Show said, I think a lot of the people of color there expressed that they felt liberated. They felt um, just more connected to their roots. I remember speaking to someone about it in the days following, and I said, "I just feel blacker. Like I don't hmm. know. Like I just feel like I have this sense of." knowledge that was never provided to me that I wouldn't have even known to try and access. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And going off of what Sho said, like, why didn't I learn this earlier? I think that the workshop actually did an amazing job of telling us why education. Yeah. They, well, we did a power analysis and they called it a foot ID or like a footprint of basically how, um, there's like tons and tons of, um, institutions that are upholding this idea of racism. This it's more than a construct because it's, it's it's like a verb. It's baked in, right? It's implemented into 
every single aspect of society. Um, but we did a power analysis of all of the institutions that contribute to it. And it, it makes sense now why we didn't learn this because they didn't want us to learn this. Right. Um, they did an amazing job of mapping out why um, a lot of things were the way that they were. Like, for example, um, socialization, how we've all been socialized to be a certain type of way, fit a certain box. Um, and then we did this amazing activity with nine dots that taught us that in order to understand things, we have to go outside of the box that they put us in. Mm. Um, and that could be as simple as just checking off, like, what race slash ethnicity are you on, like, the, the census, right. that, you know, that we do every s couple years or so. They talked about why gatekeeping has been socialized to be a negative thing, even though it's actually a super important tool that organizers use on the daily. Mm. They described a gatekeeper as any person that controls the flow of information, resources, and people and um, opened all of our eyes in the room as to how all of us were gatekeepers, whether we wanted to admit that or not, um, and in different ways. So like Sho and Tatiana were saying with um, people of color, we gatekeep our culture so that we're, we don't lose it because if we lose that, and we have no power, then are we even human at that point? Do you know what I mean? We talked about um, how white people made race secondary to racism and how we talked about, you know, chicken or the egg, right. um, how racism actually came first, and then they made up race in order to justify, to justify. their actions. Yeah. And they gave us a working definition of racism, which blew my mind because it wasn't mm. words. It was a formula so the formula was race prejudice plus power over racism and so mm. they they went in and talked about how nationality origin religion biology skin color ethnicity none of that is what race is and they described how race was just literally made up and then implemented into law and society and a numerous amount of ways so that black people felt less human. And then all the people in between had to kind of choose or people chose for them, you know? Yep. They explained different, um, um, what are they called? Um, like cases in the Supreme Court that happened in the past where, you know, in the Constitution of America, they explained how, what, how, who could own things and do what and vote and whatnot which was white men with yep. property right and so some people were like well my skin is as light as a white person but i'm from asia but i own property so can i be right. considered white a native american person oh yeah i own property and my skin is also light. like and so, then you see the laws adjust to right to only fit yep. european you know and it was just absolutely insane how um, they connected everything. They had us break out into groups and talk about all the different ways that um, racism oppresses us. So like environmentally, politically, we talked about immigration. Um, it was so, so invigorating and powerful. So validating to be like, let me filter the experiences I've had in my life based on how I'm learning about how these structures came to be. Mm -hmm, so you're mm. like, I'm not making this up or this isn't this, I, this is like set up for me to experience life in this way. Yeah. Yeah. And just to go off of Zoe's point, like 
being like categorized like we like to throw around like the concept of the box we always talked about the box and what we did not like about it our first activity was doing like what like like the nine dots and then we had to like make a box out of it yes but like in our heads we were like how yeah we had to connect them all yeah we had to connect the dots in like one like in four consecutive lines they all had to be together you're like how are we supposed to connect the dots and we can't even go outside the box Mm. the only way was to go outside the box so we've just been conditioned to you know always like color inside the lines or like you know like oh like it's messy if you color outside the lines but that sometimes it's the only you know solution and it's in Coloring outside the lines, it feels liberating. Once you don't care about it, personally, yeah. I get a little bit anxious. But because <laughs> you've been socialized, <laughs> I've been socialized. So we just like all of our lives, we've been put into a box, like race, social class, whatever the case may be, and yeah. it's been like that like forever. And like it doesn't have to be like the, uh, the world has been made in the way it is now. We could make it radically differently. Yeah, we really could. And so it's like. We always, then we talked about the box when like filling out an application mm-hmm. and we talked about like what the, the, like the race, like what do we put for race, you know, like, yeah. and I know like mixed, like people who are identified as mixed, like what do they put, you know? And it's like interesting because it's like, you don't really think about that. I didn't think about it until that workshop. Like I, I always put black or it's like black or African-American I'm not African-American, I'm Caribbean-American. Right. So it's like, am I supposed to just get my Caribbean-ness out and identify as black? Right, and is the solution to just have more boxes? Right, have more boxes right. or just not have the box? You know, like, what do we do? Or Yeah, the box thing was a great point that made me look outside the box more. When we were talking about all this, Um, I was thinking about the white people in that circle because I kind of felt like if I I, ask about that, yeah, like if I was a white person, I would feel attacked because we were really deep diving in and they brought up like very, I don't want to say personal, but they did not have no shame in saying what they want to say. And we had some people in our workshop there was tears that fell and there was talking. There was disagreements at some points. Good. Yeah. I would hope so. And I would like Zoe to okay, yeah. talk about that more. But there was some disagreements <laughs> yeah, there. And well, I, I am curious about this question because um, I think there's a value to um, having an enclave where you get to have the, a space that's like an in-group space. You don't have to deal with where you can do a lot of like healing work. You can build power, that kind of thing. But then there's, or you can be in a diverse coalition, like in this space. Um, I think there's value to both, but yeah. Tell us about some of the like points of contention, which are productive, not Mm -hmm. always, but they are important. Yeah, for sure. And when you talk about healing, they did mention that they brought up how we can do healing outside of these workshops, like these, all of these conversations that we were having were just the start and not the end, um, which I think that was a really good reminder for some people because I feel like at some points people wanted to talk over others. Um, some people didn't know what to say about a topic and 
Um, the facilitators did a great job of kind of prying and pressing <laughs> those who were mm-hmm. a little bit more quiet for <laughs> 20, 30 minutes. Okay. Um, and, um, you know, I don't want to disclose too much information because, you know, like what stays in the circle, yada, yada, yada. But, I mean, I feel like this applies to more than just this instance. I feel like this sure. happens in, this has happened to me before. It happens in daily life. Um, there was a white person who, when we had asked that question, what do you like about being white? They wanted to say, oh, I don't like being white. Um, started crying, you know, um, said that they couldn't think of anything. Um and at that moment, I don't know if it's just, you know, black girl magic, but mm-hmm. I felt my peers, meaning other black women in the circle, um, we were kind of getting frustrated. I felt myself getting angry, yeah. started tapping my foot, started biting my lip because I didn't want to yell out loud. Um, but then I eventually got, you know, my chance to speak. And I said, you just lied to yourself. You just lied to the circle. You do like being white. What you're feeling is white guilt. Um, another white person in the circle jumped in and said, we shouldn't be coddling white people. Um, you can feel guilty and have all that, but you're here for a reason, and it's to um, work on your anti-racism. I liked how the facilitators mentioned that there is no becoming anti-racist, right? Like there's no end destination. It's a lifelong right. um, process, which I, I've never heard anyone talk about it like that before, but I really agree with that. And um, it was really interesting because that same white person that said that they didn't like being white, they also explained how it was hard for them to answer that question because they felt like they had no culture. They didn't know where they came from. And I was like, I'm not going to sit here and yell at you about how I'm annoyed at your white guilt. I will tell you that we have that in common. I also don't know where I came from. So why don't we focus on what we have in common and not let the powers that be, like, try to pull us apart, you know what I'm saying? Focus on that, well, we don't know where we came from and focus on who made it that way and how we cannot have it be that way for future generations. How can we organize to make sure that other people get past their white guilt and recognize that we both have a common enemy, right? This institution, this racism that affects not only black and brown people, not only people of color, but white people as well. That doesn't make you feel good to know that your power had been um, exchanged Mm. at some point. Like now your family has to um, make their own culture. That's what black Americans had to do as well, um, just in a different way. And we hold it very close to us. And um, yeah, I think that was definitely, that was definitely a hard, a hard Pill to swallow. For was this person a, um, another student or? It was another student. Another student. Mm-hmm. Another I was student. curious about too if if um, like about how power was working in the room, mm-hmm. like with other faculty or staff. Like, did you feel like you everybody was on the same level? Not at all. You did not feel like that. Me personally, I don't know. Um, I felt like, faci- oh sorry, staff and facility were talking more um i felt like students i felt like these two girls advocated for themselves a lot i tried to too some others did but not a lot of students were talking and not a lot of white people were talking too except for i would say the consideration of mike and one other faculty member but um i can tell and we all sensed in the room when there was like 
damn, she just said that. And that's true. Right. (laughs) There was definitely some pausing and we had to be like, wow, this is true. But I do not want to look up at anyone and like label anybody. What's the what were the facilitators identities? Oh, like um, um. Asha and Addis were black women. Addis was um, an Afro-Latina. Um, and Justin was a white man. Portuguese man. and Oh, yeah, Portuguese. And um, Dr. Uh, Connolly, I believe her name was. She was also a black woman. So it was three black women and one white man, which I thought was pretty interesting. Because yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. I feel like it's my bias or whatever. I mean, but... <laughs> but i never really thought of a white man like doing these type of workshops right um and it was kind of like i guess like contradicting like identities you know like a white man and a black woman but they worked so (laughs) (laughs) they worked so well together um facilitating this workshop and like justin like he made like really good points that like i didn't even like thought would come out of his mouth mm-hmm. i don't and i was just like oh my god like he's spitting facts right now like i didn't mm. really think about this like and yeah it was interesting because like you know you he saw he knew what was going on like he was w- fully aware and he was more than aware and he continued to go about it could go how to oh, go out of his way and like educate others about like the systems that are put in place and like how we can better ourselves and how we can go about organizing. And I thought it was a really interesting seeing like a person of his identity like doing this work. Mm-hmm. Right. I felt that it was um, interesting because the facilitators were representative like in numbers of the people in the room. So the people oh, in the room were mostly people of color and then also mostly women. And so then we had three facilitators that were women of color. Mm-hmm. And then there were three white men and then one facilitator who was a white man so I was like interesting how that played out um I when I when I said before when I said not at all I was thinking more of like the levels that we came into the experience with so I feel like for obviously when you're an older person when you have multiple degrees under your belt um when some of these people had specific examples of like places that they've worked with and um, workshops that they have done to be anti-racist and yada, yada, yada. I think that a lot of the faculty and staff had more to say. Um, Also, they were just more sure of themselves, probably because of wisdom and age and all of that. Exactly. Um, So that's probably why they had more to say. I think that on that third day, it was really crucial for um, students because we finally kind of found our voice, you know, some of these professionals that we were working with, that we were speaking with, we work with in, like, our daily lives. Right. So the, that first day, it was kind of a shock, like, oh, shoot, I can't really, I don't want to say too much, I don't want to lose my job. Mm. <laughs> but after, you know, setting those ground rules, we figured that that, that wasn't going to be something that was going to happen. Um, I think that it was really important to have the different experiences and the different levels of knowledge in the room um, because there are also some things that faculty and staff just would never know if they didn't talk to students in that type of um, environment that type of space so I think you know today actually earlier we had a debrief 
Um, we had a debrief lunch with the people that could make it that were at the original workshop, and we talked about how can we um, establish like a, more ground rules and like another um, meeting or another workshop to happen again in the spring. And we talked about that. Um, do we want to have a cohort where it's all students and facilitators? Mm. Do we want to have all faculty and facilitators? Or was it beneficial to have um, faculty, students, and staff mixed? What do you think? Facilitators? Personally, I said I would rather have the faculty be there because I know for sure that they're trying to, like, do the work in order to, like, bring that knowledge into, like, the department that they're working in and help mm -hmm. the students like make it like a more welcoming community for all like people of color. Um, but other people, but I also said that I can see why like a student might want just students there because like, sure. like for me, even like coming into that space and like seeing faculty, like even people that I work with, you have to deal with that power dynamic. Yeah. Like mm -hmm. they, they know that they know that what I'm going to like, what I'm going to say, like, if I say something like, oh, like, I feel like underrepresented or something like that, I know that they're going to leave the room thinking that. Mm -hmm. And it it can, like, make a student kind of anxious because it's like, sure. well, now they know I feel underrepresented. Now I'm telling them, to, like, they're not doing their job right. Now I'm going to get fired. Da -da -da -da. Mm -hmm. But, like, the next day I felt kind of more um, relieved because I knew that they were going to hold that against me which was my first, like, my original fear. I knew that, like, they weren't going to hold it against me, but they were going to take it and take it into the department and figure out ways to make it a better working environment for me and for other people who, like, benefit from the service. Um, and, like, you know, having that, like, circulate throughout my brain and kind of, like, made me feel like, okay, well, now, now I feel like I could get more out of this and I don't have to hold back. Right. So... Uh, but a lot of students won't think that way. Yeah, they're yeah, going to yeah. hold back. The, like, they're going to, like, repress themselves in their emotions. So they might not get as much out of it as I did if it had, like, faculty in it. Um, but, yeah. I mean, it, there's kind of pros and cons to this. There yeah. are definitely pros and cons. Because I'm thinking about, like, how valuable it is. Like, there's always the power dynamic in the classroom, right? Like, mm -hmm. you have the, the professor, no matter how they teach, they're still grading students. And they're still, like... We've had that power dynamic our whole lives. So if if we as faculty members are in a learning space and the facilitators who sound very skilled are able to work with that power dynamic um, over time, that's not something that can happen in a one day. Yeah. I think that's part of the value of a two and a half day experience yeah. together. The power dynamic of that experience was very interesting mm. because the faculty, I felt like, was at the same level as the students because they didn't even know that much mm. in the first place, as much as the facilitators did. But the facilitators didn't really like emphasize a power dynamic. Yeah, they themselves like made it. They themselves like made it seem like they were learning themselves, like throughout mm -hmm. the relation, the, throughout the um, workshop sure. as they were facilitating. Mm -hmm. And they I are. thought that was very yeah because yeah, they are they're all, they're also learning like mm -hmm. they, they eventually they didn't learn this they didn't know this information before right and now they're all they're doing is just like relaying the information so there wasn't like the power dynamic I I I thought it was very interesting how they didn't really like be like oh like I'm educated like I know more about racism mm -hmm. than you guys do da -da -da -da. <laughs> like it was very interesting it was a very much of a learning experience for all of us including the facilitators and I thought it was like a very um 
like relieving experiences. And I know that from the facilitators, like each workshop that they facilitate, it's a different emotional sure. experience for them, which was very relieving because like, yeah, it's going to be different for them. Like, and it's going to be like the first time for me. So we're kind of all going through this together, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was very comforting for me. Yeah. No, definitely going off of what Sho said. Um, and going back to the, the question that Casey asked, what, what will it look like for a future? Um, um, talking about the box again, yeah. right? <laughs> now, through my new lens, um, this this afternoon we were talking about, you know, facilitators, faculty and staff, or just students. Um, we had a student say, well, why not all of that? Like, there could be multiple um, ways in which we could f- um, run the next one. And so why not have, you know, breakout groups of faculty and students or just students or just faculty um i think that for everyone it is a learning experience right so some faculty on the first and second day were feeling like oh i've been through this so many times and this and that but by the third day it's we're all stripped down to just being learners and sharing information that um others wouldn't have known because again we all have different experiences um so I thought that that was a really pivotal moment for me, just like Casey said, knowing that we've all just been used to this like power dynamic hierarchy um, ever since, you know, like pre-K, kindergarten. Um, but just having that space be so open and wanting to continue that for the future um, was really like our central goal. Um, because if that's not established like earlier, then it's very difficult to get into those more like difficult conversations. Um, and Casey, they mentioned to us that originally the workshop is a ten day long experience. Ten day. Ten days. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah. two and a half days was like short. What? And it's the like facilitators the Twitter version were, of like yeah, <laughs> yeah, the trailer. The, they called it the Spark Notes, right? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so the the facilitators were like, all right this is a diverse group of people. How are we going to do this in two and a half days? And again, they mentioned on that third day that this was not the end. This is only the beginning for us in this group of people. And it is up to us as organizers to grow our small group of 17 into an army and really make some change here on campus. You know, I, I mean, one of the complaints that lots of different people have is that so much like that happens on college campuses around um, diversity or anti-racism is like, oh, come to this program as one hour and a half on this day and then you leave and then what, you know? So there's like programming, but it's not built for sustainable lasting change. Um, And it doesn't necessarily, it has people more be audience members, even participants, but it's not necessarily um, building power, building a movement or, or moving towards structural change yeah those three days I felt like was not enough just because that first night it was more like an introduction of what we're going to do for the two days and then the second day we were learning how long are the the days um it was (laughs) eight hour shifts yeah okay (laughs) it was a long day yeah um well Friday night was the shortest one it was three hours 
Yeah. Saturday was crazy. It was eight hours, and then the next day it was six. Yeah. We did have an hour break, though, so we, like, got to... But we did, like, we did have to, like, we did get to, like, have our own breaks, so, like, during it. Like, so we got, like, get, like, water, like, step outside, get a snack or something. But we were having this ongoing conversation, like, mm-hmm. for, like, six to eight hours at a time. Yeah. Yes. And each topic felt like we spent 40 minutes on, and it was a lot of information thrown and it just wasn't enough. And I see why they do it in 10 days. But then again, we were talking about this earlier at the debriefing was how can we make this sustainable for all of us because of our crazy schedules yes. as students, as faculty and staff and the instructors? Like, how can we still continue to do this more throughout the year? But it's the schedules, you know? Right. I also wonder, I mean, in the United States right now, like, I don't know, half of the population is like, we shouldn't talk about race at all. Yeah. Like, why are we doing this? And then, mm-hmm. that's hilarious. so then when I think about, right, <laughs> when I, when I think about like in a, I don't even know if it's in an ideal world, but it would be nice if everyone could experience this workshop. And also yeah. if one thing that everyone who was there with y'all had in common was they chose to be there. Mm-hmm. I wonder how, how might it be if someone were there, not against their will, but someone... Mandated? Yeah. I don't know. Like, how would that change the experience for people who really do want to be there? I said that people, certain groups of people, should be mandated to be there. But how might that impact everybody else, too? I, well, I feel like the hardest part about this workshop was going yeah like it was getting the time and the energy to go Mm -hmm. but after that everything else was easy yeah because they were like teaching us and yes yes yes. we i i I was well taken care of right Mm -hmm. yeah well yeah (laughs) and like all you had to do was just be Mm open-minded and learn and be willing to learn i mean yeah it was it was very hard having these conversations and like having to process all this information and like swallowing like pills that like i didn't even know i had to swallow mm-hmm. and then <laughs> um, digesting and digesting it yeah. and yeah it's like it's a very hard like long hard process but the one big step is just getting the time to go and a lot of people like don't even want to enter themselves in these spaces that's right because they say like oh it's gonna be so hard like i didn't know what i'm gonna get like it's gonna be too much and I was like that before, but once I educated myself and I was like, yeah, like I'm ready to have these conversations now. I, this is like my, this is my passion now. Yes. Like it's became, it became my favorite. Like I love advocating. I love, I love learning like new ways to advocate for social justice and like helping my community. It's all about entering yourself, but I know people aren't ready. So kind of like mandating them might not be a great idea, but mm-hmm. I feel like student leaders, as a student leader, it's very, very important that you should know this information. Not just student leaders, but I feel like especially faculty members, mm-hmm. especially people who work in social sciences. Sure. This is very, very important information because you can't really avoid di- like DEI no. issues. Like it's it's there. So that's why I feel like it should be mandated. But as for like all students, like the general population, I don't think so because some of these people aren't, aren't ready to have these not conversations. Mm-hmm. Not everybody's ready. So, yeah, I feel like it happens at an individual level, and you gotta have the motivation to want it and mm-hmm. to have it. 
it's difficult at times because with everyone's opinions nowadays, we were talking about one of the days, like, what if we had people against racism? Like, how would we react? And I'm glad we had nobody that was opposed to it. Everyone seemed, you know, willing to talk about it in a respectful manner, which I liked. And I believe we are going to have one upcoming in February. And we're trying to find out ways it can sound and be more inviting and interesting because like i said once you have a flyer that says come to the workshop undoing racism right. of it's, course first of all it's intimidating it is yeah. and of course you know us wanting to advocate will join but like how can we get others that would want to but they just can't somehow get into it how can we be like hey like come join us and do this and do that how can we make it sound like right. Everyone wants to Which come. you can apply to other things. Like how do you build social movements? How do you build mm-hmm. coalition? Mm-hmm. And it's not just that like you three, for example, need to, you know, get everybody on board, but that, you know, the people that you get on board, they do the same thing mm-hmm. and build outwards from there. But I mean, I really, I could keep talking to you all, all day and I will say that your professors are lucky to have you in class. <laughs> I know only Thank one you. of your professors, but the rest of them, very lucky to have y'all in class, truly. Um, But I'm wondering, I mean, I'm often overwhelmed by the magnitude of our problems as like a society and as a global problems. I mean, they just seem so big and so entrenched. Um, And sometimes like I just think that that can be overwhelming and and you can feel like you can do nothing about these huge problems. You all seem to me very filled with hope around possibility for structural change. So I wonder like for a final thought, like what do you see differently now or what actions do you have to take? What new lens um, are you taking with you? Yeah, I I really love that question. Um, I have so many ideas. (laughs) I guess the first thing that comes to my mind personally would be just implementing these ideas into my community. So I identify, I am an RA. I tell everybody, everybody knows that. You identify as an RA? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I identify as a resident advisor. Um, But it, it impacts me every single day. I live in the, in the hall with my residents. I live with um, not just any residents, but freshman residents. So students that are coming straight from high school And, you know, we as RAs that um, did this workshop, we feel that all RAs should be mandated to do it. Um, We should implement these ideas into programs, socials, educationals um, that residents can attend, make the information a little bit more digestible. Um, I don't want to say, you know, watered down, but just not as intense (laughs) so that younger people who may not have the maturity that we have as juniors in college that our social justice advocates have, um, make it so that it's something that they see as important, something that they will want to talk to their friends about. Mm -hmm. Um, And to really just start there 
because um, res life, residence life on any college campus has such a big impact on the way that campus like operates. It really does. So honestly, like starting there would be um, ideal for me. Um, I don't know how Shoshana feels. She's also an RA. I completely agree. <laughs> I am a resident advisor, but unlike Zoe, I um, I work in an upper class building. It's a very different dynamic. Uh, because these people, like, they, they've already done the whole, like, college thing for, like, what, like three, two, three years now? Maybe their transfers. Or- yeah. Well, I don't. No, we don't get a lot of transfers at all. Um, but they just like they don't they don't really like feed into the whole like involvement thing. Right. Because they're kinda like my age, like well, they are my age. We all came in, in twenty twenty where like oh, college was sure. dead. We it got was. used to like sitting we're coming in our coming back dorms. to life right now. Yeah, we're mm-hmm. coming out to like slowly, yeah. but now they got used to like, you know, sitting in the rooms and like not doing anything, like not getting yeah. involved on campus. And if they were to like step out their rooms, they usually like go out at night. Right. Um, but like being involved on campus is just, and like getting them to go to programs. It's so. I uh, feel this as a as a faculty member, someone who puts programs on. It's hard to get people. Yeah, and so when it comes to like social justice and implementing implementing that in like programs, like how am I how like it's like how how, how like how? I ask myself that every day. Well, what am I gonna do? This isn't gonna work. <laughs> um, I have to like even if I give out free food, like it's not gonna work. You have a different audience. Yeah, and it's just uh, it's it. I'm still like trying to figure out like what's the best way to make an impact in my building, right? And what's the best way to uh, make like a change in my just on the the campus in general, like my community, or, right? Because I I got this um. I learned this point from the workshop. Like Justin made a great point. He said, even if we kick out the racists out of the system, racism stays in place. Right. The only solution is to dismantle it or rebuild another system. And I thought that was a very, very good point because as much as we like to like cancel people and like cancel culture or whatever, yeah. or, you know, as much as we like to vote out the, the most like bigoted president or whatever, like, this country is still going to be racist no yeah. matter what, like no matter who's president, no matter if it's like a Democrat or Republican. Uh-huh. And yeah. And it's, it's not just on the country level. It's in the city level. It's in the state level. It's like in all the levels and it's on this campus. Sure. We have all these people, faculty working and they might want to call it a social justice university, but the school has been around for a very, very long time. I mean, it's a state school. So, I mean, yeah, they can put in all like all the people of color, like faculty or whatever, but we have to really brainstorm on how we can reverse the effects of racism to better help our POC um, students. Mm-hmm. And not even POC students, not even just them, but people, communities who are underserved. Yeah. Um, so going like... I guess like looking through those lens, I just I, I move I move differently now. Hmm. Um, just based on just just when I like when it comes to like organizing and like I'm so I'm a diversity peer educator also, um, besides being an RA and um it just it, it kinda it kinda it kinda like makes me um change the way I go about things and the way I educate because I don't wanna just like 
try my best to people to get to people who don't want to listen. Right. The best way I can get like make change is to talk to people. I guess like preach to the choir. The best way that's the best way right now. Yeah. People talking to people who want to learn. Or the, so that the people related to the choir. Yeah. yeah. So that <laughs> so that they can relate to other people yes. who like also want to learn and they do the same and da 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 and then eventually we can make change. So I yes, feel yeah. like because because talking Otherwise to burn out. Yeah, talking to a brick wall, it's not mm-hmm. it's not effective. It's 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 useless. So whatever we're doing now, I feel like, you know, talking like this the space that we organized, it was people who was want, who wanted to learn. Mm-hmm. Now we're trying to get people who also want to learn and creating like making a bigger space out of that and right. that's honestly the the best way we could get change. Mm-hmm. Just working on a community level instead of or on a campus level or wherever, like on a small, on a local level, mm-hmm. rather than trying to like fix the world and undo racism. Yeah. You right. know? <laughs> mm-hmm. I agree. We should do small and then get larger, larger, larger. I hope it becomes like something big. You know, we're still battling this every day throughout the world. Looking after the workshop. I do have a different lens. Mm -hmm. I can't really describe what it's like, but I feel more open to possibilities in a way. Mm. I'm more open-minded. I used to just be like, yep, I think that's, and that's why. But now I'm like, no, this is that because of this and that and that. So I'm like, okay, I'm more open-minded. I feel smarter in kind of way. I I don't know how to explain it. (laughs) But um, it also made me want to advocate more for I do um, work for clients that suffer from mental illness and I do advocate for them and I've been doing it way more after the workshop. Like I've been making sure they understand that too. And my social norms, like even I would say that maybe sometimes I would be biased or label, but it's like something I, I'm grew up in, I'm growing up in New Britain on the east side and I see all kinds of things. So I already know my community and I know the other community. So I know it, but I'm kind of like, I'm looking through things so much differently now and I'm wanting to jumpstart and do things more. So I'm so eager to know like what this next workshop is going to be like. We're going to talk more about how should it be, but I wonder like, yes, like we could keep talking about this, but we already went through it. Right. So I don't want to do another workshop and relearn what we relearned. I want to talk about what's the next what's steps. Next? Yeah. So I really want to learn more about it. I mean, this is the, like, I can just say that as someone who's been sitting here talking to y'all for, you know, hour 15 minutes, that that time, first of all, Blew by, but what's really palpable to me is your sense of um, agency, sense of possibility, and actually being able to create meaningful change. And I think what's happening on campus is a lot of people are jaded, or just in society, not just campus, mm-hmm. and feel like like it's easier to complain and feel like you can't do anything, even though that makes us feel bad, makes us feel burned out. Um, and we all, I think, at times fall into that trap we really can change culture through and change institutions starting with where we're at exactly where we are right now yes yeah like what what we're doing right now 
is what matters. It's right. just honestly how you go about it. Like, you like whatever major you're in, you're gonna like find a way to help people. Mm-hmm. You know, I know like uh, I know one of my friends. She's a journalism major. Yeah, she uncovers stories about how there's you know like injustices and like POC like on campus and like she wants to like make that stuff aware on how POC are like impacted on campus in the different ways. And even that is just impactful because she's spreading awareness. She's, she's spreading awareness. She wants change. She wants something to be done. Like whatever community, whatever department you're in, you have the power to make the change. It all, it's all on you. And I, I get that like people are like, they can get like burnout and everything, but like people who identify as a person of color, it really should not be, it should not depend all on them. Yeah. It has to be white people to do the work. I understand that as a person of color, it is so draining yeah. to edu- go out there and educate about people or uh, to people about certain things that they don't know of or try and make change or like what, what, what like be a dead horse, like try and like put in certain policies to protect themselves. But we all we all know that like we're not listened to enough. I mean, yeah, it's getting better. It's getting better. Like our voices are starting to be heard. Mm-hmm. But personally, like I didn't think my voices was going to be heard. Like I, okay, this is kind of like irrelevant. But <laughs> I held a protest to take down a Columbus statue in my city of Bridgeport, uh-huh. and the next day they took it down. Wow, yeah. that okay. was crazy. <laughs> wow, like it's like Impressive. yeah. I mean, it didn't. It's also like it wasn't just me. I had another. Right. I had a whole group of people to do it with me. I had an army. I guess well, I don't like to say army because it's yeah. kind of like. But <laughs> I, I had supporters. I had the people who wanted, who shared, who wanted the same cause, who wanted the same impact as I wanted to get the statue down. So another thing is that you can't do this work alone. That's right. Mm-hmm. You need people to back you up. You need people from different departments. You need people who have different strengths or weaknesses or whatever the case may be. You need backup mm-hmm. because doing this work alone is just going to bite you in the ass. Yes. It's literally, it's not going to work out for you and no change is going to be done. So yeah, I guess my two points are like, if you're benefiting from privilege, please do the work mm-hmm. to for those who do not get the same privileges as you, but also you cannot do it alone. Right. Because if you try and do it alone, you're going to get burned out really easily. Yeah. But also don't take all the credit. Yes. Don't oh, don't take all the credit. I agree. It, I feel like it takes one to be a leader to her having to have that statue taken down. You must have been the leader for all of that. And then you had people behind you. And it takes one to be strong to do that. And not many people are ready for that. They're just looking for someone to do it first, and then they're going to do it. So I think it comes down to, like, we all want to, we all want to want, how do you say it? Like, we all need to want to have it. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah, I, I, you know, I mean, I I really, I know we need to wrap up this conversation, but honestly, I'm having a really good time talking to you all. (laughs) But I, I got an email last night from, um, I don't even know from where, but it was like, take political action and get a sticker today. I'm like, are we really trying to make political change by getting a sticker? Mm. 
Because that makes me feel so sad. And also, like, that's not it. That's not it. So, like, the kinds of change where you are actually uh, building coalitions, working with other people, making change in the place where you actually live, that's not, what you know, like, slacktivism, where you're liking this or signing this online petition, mm-hmm. that doesn't... That doesn't feel good as a person to be participating in that way and think that that's all that you can do. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. I think with the sticker, it goes off of, it goes with what I was going to say is my final point. Um, when it comes to wanting to organize, wanting to create change, um, instead of looking externally, right? I'm a psych major, so external versus internal. Um, Instead of looking externally for, you know, a sticker, a pat on the back, um, some major change immediately right in front of you, right? Like that immediate gratitude that we get from social media and whatnot. I would say for me and for like-minded people, we tend to look internally. How can I, how can I myself make a change and create a better life, a better place um, for people like me and people unlike me. Um, and to start that, even if you don't believe that you're a leader, just believe in yourself. Like, start with yourself. Start with doing the work that makes you a better person, and you'll naturally want to have that for other people, you know? Believe in yourself. Um Therapy works wonders, right? Mm. Unlearn that internalized racism. We did a lot of that in the workshop or started to do that, Um, unlearn your biases, and naturally, like, in your everyday life, um, you'll start to converse with people, and they'll follow, they'll either move away from you, or fall in line, and that's how you can really start to um, create change. That is a beautiful note to end on. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, Our campus is so lucky to have you all as leaders. I hope I can be there for the workshop in February. Absolutely. We hope so too. Yes. yes. That would be amazing. And um, I hope that that other folks who are listening on other campuses or in other communities um, see a potential for bringing the Undoing Racism workshop to their own spaces. Um, yes. And if you're interested in learning more, you want to bring a workshop to your community, uh, you can go to PISAB.org, People's Institute for Survival and Beyond.org. Tons of information there. Um, but Zoe, Tatiana, Shoshana, thank you so much for conversation today and for all the work you do. Thank you. (laughs) All right, we'll see you soon. Thank you.